Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Of the passages of Scripture that get taught on regularly, this is probably not one of them. This one doesn't make it into many of the uh, children's ministry curriculums for good reason. Teaching through Scripture verse by verse means that sometimes you come across parts of the Bible that do not normally get taught in certain contexts, and 1 Corinthians 7 is one of those contexts. But this letter, 1 Corinthians, was addressed to a church, and in churches are both singles and marrieds, adults and children. So this letter would have been read in the context with many present which is why we are going to teach through it, and we're going to teach through all of it here today. Married people should not tune out when we read passages about singleness. Singles should not tune out when we read passages directed to those who are married. Because even those pertaining to the sexual aspect of husband and wife's union ultimately matters because it matters to God. So that's the sort of thing we're going to be talking about today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to read the whole uh, first half of 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 16, and then we'll just dive into verse by verse going through this, digging into it, trying to understand exactly what Paul has communicated under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and then we'll have a little bit of time for some discussion and hopefully some questions too. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to be able to be together and to be able to open your word. And we thank you for just truly how comprehensively you have communicated all that you have for us to live a life that's pleasing to you. We thank you that you have not um, left these things up to guesswork, up to cultural definition, and up to our own um, inclination regarding what uh, marriage is supposed to look like, what singleness is supposed to be useful for, and even your will as it pertains to divorce and um, how to, how to think through and navigate those things too. So I just ask that you would be with all of us this morning, allow your spirit to be working fully in each heart, giving us eyes to see exactly what you have for us this morning, giving me words to communicate clearly. Lord, please allow these things to not be misunderstood and misapplied. Guard us each from those um, temptations to take something in scripture and twist it to justify something that you never intended. Lord, guard us from false teaching and uh, things that we inevitably will hear or already have heard throughout our lives that are contrary to your word. Help us to be just founded and stabilized on what your word teaches, especially in this area as in all of them. So bless us this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. I will be reading from the ESV. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that, that it is good for them to remain single, as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, 
she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? First section that we'll be looking at here in the first five verses, the title is Marital Intimacy is Good. The husband and wife should live like they are married. So there was an error. Verse 1 talks about that error. And the error is that some had reacted in the wrong way to the sin of sexual immorality. For the last two chapters, we've been talking about sexual immorality in the church in Corinth. Believers um, doing things that believers should not be doing. So there was an overreaction among some in Corinth and an overreaction in the wrong direction against that sexual immorality. They had gone so far, they had gone so far as to embrace a sort of asceticism that saw sexuality and sexual intimacy as unspiritual. That's your first blank, unspiritual. They had seen if sexual immorality is evil, then therefore any form of sex at all would be unspiritual and somehow wrong. With this view, they then condemned sex in general and claimed it was somehow a sign of virtue if a couple, a married couple, refrained from sex in marriage. But what's the correction to this? That's what Paul then goes into. Paul's correction, his response and the instructions. Paul responds to this erroneous phrase that they were using by commending the married couples, commending that married couples should act like they are married. And basically, he finds, it says three different ways the same thing, which is spouse, be sexually intimate with your spouse. He says it three ways in four verses, and that's what we'll look at. So, verse two, married person, be sexually intimate. The specific instruction is have your spouse. And I'll admit that having previously read this verse uh, and not studied it, I I thought that was basically a a commission to go find a spouse, like go find a spouse. But um, having dug into that more and realizing the way that the the New Testament and the Old Testament, same sort of phrase, like having here, to have is a, a reference to sexual intimacy. So husband, have your wife. Wife, have your husband. It doesn't mean go get yourself a husband or wife. It's an idiom meaning to have her sexually. That is, to be married or in an ongoing sexual relation with a man or woman. It's not the idea of go take a wife, it's have the wife that you have. So, in this context, these two verbs, to have, imply fully, full reciprocal sexual relations, is how one commentator puts it. And then the reason for that, so he gives the command three times, but then he gives a reason each time. And then verse two, the reason is each man should have his own wife, sorry, at the beginning, verse two, but because of temptation to sexual immorality. So temptation to sexual immorality is given as reason number one to have ongoing sexual intimacy with your spouse. Second place that he gives this instruction in verse three and four, and it's, it's worded different, but it's the same instruction, married person be sexually intimate. It's the phrase conjugal rights is how ESV translates it. That's, that's adding in the word conjugal, which is I mean, not a phrase that we regularly use. It's perhaps the most sterile-sounding term for sex invented, conjugal rights or fulfill his duty. But we have to dig into it because rightly applying this and rightly understanding this is really, really important when we think about the, the, the husband and wife relationship. So first off, um, give to, it, it connotes this, this idea, connotes fulfilling a responsibility. It's um, that which one ought to do, a duty, specifically that which is appropriate in a social relationship. And that absolutely is not at all the way our culture thinks, promotes, talks about sexuality at all. It's not, that's not portrayed in um, secular movies, that's not portrayed as some sort of virtue, but I think we tend to think of like, if something's an obligation, then therefore it, it can't be um, also willfully and joyfully rendered. 
But I think the way this word is used in Romans 13, 7, which I believe I included in your handout there, just seeing the way that this idea of rights and what is owed is talked about helps to understand that this is, this is expansive in regards a wide variety of things that we ought to do. So here Paul says in Romans, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. And honor, to whom honor is owed. So it's not talking about some sort of drudgery. It's just saying someone's owed something, and it's your responsibility to fulfill that. So sexual intimacy in marriage, as with so many other things in life, is not fundamentally about your feelings. It's not fundamentally about your feelings. And I don't want to imply at all that feelings aren't involved, but fundamentally, the thing that, that keeps that fire burning, as it were, in a marriage is not just how you feel one day. It's not just how you feel the next day. It's ongoing faithfulness to your spouse to fulfill what God has called you to fulfill in marriage. And it's really important to see here, looking at verse 3 again, the husband ought to give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. The emphasis of the rights is on what you owe, not what you are owed. It's on what you owe, not on what you are owed, which is this, if this gets flip-flopped, so many ugly things start to happen as all of a sudden it becomes not a matter of I have a responsibility given to me by God to do this. If it gets flipped to, I as a husband start to demand of my wife, you have a responsibility to give me this, then it's a misunderstanding and a total flip-flop of this command. We don't have a responsibility to obey God's word for someone else. This is true of any biblical command. We have a responsibility ourselves to obey God's word. And the case is true here for husbands and wives. So the reason given for this command, this second statement of the command, is for the married person, authority over the body belongs to the spouse. Verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And I want to just point out a really remarkable connection that we see from the previous chapter. So look up at 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. And if you just look up there and realize that this flows right into what Paul's talking about. Verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So the progression here, your body is the Holy Spirit's temple, verse 19a. You do not belong to yourself, verse 19b. God purchased you, verse 20a. Glorify God with your body, verse 20b. And then three or four verses later, spouse, your husband or your wife has authority over your body. And I think seeing that progression is remarkable to realize that truly, Marriage is a gift. Song of Solomon 6.3 says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And then many other poetic imagery used throughout Song of Solomon. And then Proverbs 18.22, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord, a gift from the Lord. So the implication, a believing husband or wife is truly a gift from the Lord because only God can ultimately give what belongs to him. Only God can ultimately give what belongs to him, and that's what this progression talks about. Your body belongs to the Lord. So when a husband and wife get married, your body then becomes under the authority of the person that you're married to, and who, who can give that authority if your body belongs to the Lord? Only God. And that's what highlights that what, what God has joined together, let not man separate, separate. God is the one joining a husband and wife together. And again, in the same way that the previous verse, the rights talked about are, are your obligations to fulfill. Similarly, the main emphasis is that the spouse has no right to withhold sexual union from his or her spouse. The focus, I'll, I'll read this a couple times, it's in your notes too, the focus 
is on the authority that you do not have, not your authority to demand whatever you want from your spouse because of your own authority. Like you can, you can make the logical jump and be like, okay, well, if, if my body, if my wife has authority over my body, and I, could, I can, of course, flip-flop that and be like, well, the, the command to her is that I have authority over her body, but that's not what's the emphasis of this. The emphasis and the, the command and the reason is you don't have autonomy anymore. It's not just up to you to pick and choose when you're going to obey God's command here. Husband is to be serving his wife. Wife is to be serving her husband. And, and the command is directed on who uh, does not have the authority. Does that make sense there? I'm going to pause for questions, so I'm doing that right now. Are there questions that anyone wants some clarification on this? I realize this is one that you might not want to raise your hand and ask in a bunch of people, but still want to give context to clarify where there's points of confusion. Yes, Adam. Oh, so what's the correct course of action if your spouse starts to deny you those things? Mm-hmm. That is a very good question, Adam. <laughs> um, so, again, the, the priority is on you as an individual fulfilling your responsibility to honor and obey. And any time, I mean, you, with this passage, it's a realization that that ongoing pattern, which we'll actually get to in, in a little bit about the, um, so we'll touch on this in a second. But where there's an ongoing pattern of God's word says to do one thing and the pattern that's developing in your life is, is something else, then it's, it's really the same way you would approach graciously any other area of growing sin in your spouse's life, which is a regular reality in marriage. I mean, the, the person you are closest to when you're married is your spouse, which tragically means the person that's going to experience the most of your indwelling sin is your spouse, which means the post, person that you're going to need to forgive and ask forgiveness from the most is your spouse. And this area is, is similar to that, where it's, hey, Scripture, scripture says this is, this is what this is supposed to look like. This is, this is not looking like this. How can I serve you? How can we together grow in this? So um, it's, it's a matter of still doing what's right yourself, but also patiently helping see correction happen. So I don't know, married men with any addition there, Russ? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I can tell you what you don't do is you don't go, see, see, it says right here. <laughs> um, yeah, and then to Austin's point, it's, it's just like any other sin. It's like, and you have to allow God to work in your spouse, um, just like God has to work in you. And so uh, you have to pray. You know, you have to pray, Lord. You know, convict. Um, let me get the plank out of my own eye before I see the speck in my spouse's eye. And I think what's key, and the question you didn't ask, is what that can be then is a temptation to sin and mm -hmm. to try to get that fulfilled elsewhere, whether that's through pornography or some other type of affair. Um, so it's something that you really have to guard against. Um, and be careful, and which means ultimately, you know, God intends to fulfill this desire within a marriage relationship, and if, if it's not being fulfilled there, then the temptation is to acquire it through sin, um, where you have to trust the Lord to say, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm, my hope is in you. My hope is in, isn't in my spouse obeying um, So it's, it can be very challenging um, in that sense, but... Um, yeah, it's the key is to remember, you know, you can't convict your spouse of their sin. That's something that God has to do. Um, and then you have to seek and trust the Lord to ultimately provide uh, your, for your needs, just like you do in anything else. Great clarification, Russ. Thank you. And good question, Adam. Any other questions? Yeah. We'll have a couple other spots to pause, but that's really the next the next command that Paul gives in verse 5. Again, married person, be sexually intimate. Instructions specifically, do not deprive one another. In verse 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps, and then he lists kind of this, the exception checklist, all four must be checked, 
by mutual agreement for a limited duration for the purpose of devotion to prayer with renewing sexual activity being a prompt uh, priority after that prayer pause. So Paul kind of like says this category, says, okay, perhaps, yeah, there's this, but these four criteria need to be met. And then he uh, moves on. But again, the reason given is exactly what Russ just, just mentioned, prevention of temptation. Because at the end of that verse, um, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So some application that flows out of this. Paul lists three reasons that married couple need to be regularly relating intimately. And two of those reasons are so that temptation to sexual immorality and lack of self-control don't overcome someone. But I want to hold this reality very close to what Paul's going to talk about in a few chapters in 1 Corinthians 10, 12-13, where he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And then Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you but that which is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So these two verses, verse 5 of chapter 7 and verse 13 of chapter 10, these are the only places in this letter where the verb to tempt is used. I think that's significant. Is Paul contradicting himself? In one place he says, you need to make sure you're having sexual intimacy with your wife because otherwise there's going to be temptation. But then he turns around a couple chapters later and says, no temptation's overtaken you but that which is common to man, and with it he'll provide a way of escape. So how do we harmonize these two realities? One, God promises a way of escape, but then temptation is listed as a danger to be avoided. I think in order to harmonize these realities, we have to look at this. Temptation is escaped through a variety of means which God provides. And some of those means of escape might not seem, quote-unquote, spiritual on the surface. But it may nevertheless be the God-ordained escape route. For married couples, one of the most clear God-ordained escape routes and actually preventative measures against sinful sexual temptation is to maintain a pattern of intimacy together. Nevertheless, no matter what season of life you are in, 1 Corinthians 10.13 is true, and there is a way of escape amidst every temptation. I think just by way of illustration here, when you talk about a way of escape in temptation, Usually we think of like a one-track way of escape. And if we read chapter 7, verse 5, and that was the only one we'd read, have you ever, most of you have probably been on a plane before, and you're sitting on the plane, and they're giving a little security briefing, not security briefing, safety briefing, and they're talking about where the exits are, and then there's always that line, keep in mind the nearest exit may be behind you. So you're in the back row of the plane, and there's an exit right behind you, but all you read is chapter 7, verse 5, and you're seeing the exit way up on the front of the plane, that's actually not the nearest exit for you in the face of sexual temptation. That'd be a case in which the nearest exit is much closer than that. Flee temptation, get away from it, whatever it might look like. There's a variety of escape routes that God provides in the midst of temptation. For a husband and wife, one of those escape routes is be sexually intimate, but that's clearly not the case for singles. So we just have to keep in mind that there are multiple escape routes for temptation. So question just to think about uh, sorry, no, not question to think about. That's my note to ask for questions. Are there any questions that we need to think about? <laughs> any points of clarification from that one? All right, we'll roll on. Number two, singleness is good. Paul's concession, his, his wish and his instructions, verses six through nine. In verse nine, Paul says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. This is a clarification regarding the marriage instructions that he's just given. Paul knew that what he said in verses 2 through 5 could, could be twisted to imply that marriage is a command and that everyone needs to get married. Here he pauses to make sure his point is not misunderstood. So first off, our English version, ESV says, I concede or as a concession Uh, Most of us are probably thinking of a concession stand, which is not very helpful. The word concede in English, to concede something is to finally admit that something is true or to surrender a point, like I'm giving that point. The Greek there is to to permit something, to allow for something, to recognize or observe something. Like I see this point, I see there's there's a potential here, I just need to clarify, I'm conceding that, 
I'm not commanding that. So I'm not saying you have to be married. Quote from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Paul is telling the Corinthians that under certain circumstances, they should marry, but God has given no command that they must do so. Basically, Paul is conceding marriage. He's not commanding it. Implication. You do not need to get married in order to live a purposeful, good, and eminently useful Christian life. There are not two tiers of Christians, the married Christians and the unmarried Christians. Marriage is not a command. And on the flip side, singleness is not a command. Throughout church history, it seems there's just constantly a cycle between one of those things getting over-prioritized. I mean, like, throughout centuries, you had, within the Roman Catholic Church, you had, like, the priests had to be the ones that were celibate. Like, marriage, bad, so they had to be single. Now, I think the contemporary tendency is to over-elevate marriage in the church and, and undervalue singleness, but it's constantly changing. It might be different in decades to come, but the point is, neither is a command, and that needs to be really understood. Um, because both Jesus and Paul and many others were single, and there's great value and usefulness in single, singleness. And then in verse 7, Paul's commendation, his experience with the value of singleness. He just reflects on his own life. I, I wish you all were as I was. The value of singleness. He's being uh, hyperbolic. He's using a hyperbole. It's not his actual desire slash will that everyone in the church be single. He recognizes that God gives various gifts. God gives, gives various gifts. Nacelli comments that this each has his own gift from God implies that both marriage and singleness are gifts from God. I'm going to say this shouldn't be controversial, but those who are married have the gift of marriage. Those who are single have the gift of singleness. There's been an abundant amount of confusion related to the gift of singleness, thinking that the gift of singleness is something that, some sort of this mysterious thing that I don't know if I have it, I, I, maybe I do, but usually when you start to think of it that way, it's like, oh, maybe I have the curse of singleness is really how this ends up feeling. Reality is that both are gifts, both seasons are gifts, and gifts are meant to be used. Gifts are graciously and lovingly given by God for a purpose. You look at the way gifts are referenced throughout Scripture, they're purposeful. And that purpose is beyond the mere satisfaction and happiness of the recipient. So if you're thinking and thinking, man, I have this, this gift of singleness, but I don't want it. Well, <laughs> gifts aren't just about you. God gives you gifts for a reason. There are plenty of people with the gift of marriage that don't want it, but that is the gift the Lord has given them, and they must fulfill the purposes God has in the midst of that gift. So I just, question for reflection, we'll hit it in a little bit, but how are you using the gift of singleness that God has given you? Are you using the gift of singleness? Are you stewarding that gift God has given you? Recognizing that that gift may be a limited time in which to leverage and use that gift. So Paul's instructions in this, in verse 8 and 9, continuing after he's kind of reflected on his own life, in verse 8 and 9, he says, to the, to the unmarried and the widows, I say this, it is good for them to remain single as I am. So he, um, he commends the goodness of singleness. And then he says in verse 9, the goodness of singleness may be outweighed by the need for marriage. Look at verse 9. But if they cannot ex exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. This idea of it is good for them to remain single. I just want to point out, this isn't technically an instruction to remain single. It's simply acknowledging the goodness of the state of singleness. Paul isn't saying everyone needs to be single. He's saying those who are single, singleness is good. To the unmarried and to the widow, singleness is good. And we need to wrap our minds around that. The goodness of the state of singleness. And note here, we'll talk about it a little bit, Lord willing, next week when we talk more about the, the unmarried and the widow and living as you're called. But the idea of goodness in, in this verse has a slight connotation of usefulness. It's not like some sort of like moral purity, that sort of goodness. It has a, a good and useful and beneficial idea. We'll talk more about this in the week to come. But I wanted to mention it here because Paul's not somehow setting up singleness as the moral high ground 
And then marriage is kind of like this like lesser uh, bummer. You had to get married. Uh, that's too bad. Like, no, he's talking about the, the goodness and the intrinsic usefulness of singleness. Paul is saying that singleness is good to help ensure people do not think that they must get married, but he's not trying to say one's better, one's, one's less good. But then in verse 9, he does make very clear that marriage is better than sin. Marriage is better than sin. Being married comes along, being unmarried, sorry, being unmarried comes along with temptations to selfish sinfulness. Anyone who is single or has been single, which is everyone, knows that. Being unmarried comes along with temptations to selfish sinfulness. And if, if those temptations are such that the gift of singleness is uh, just generally a, an unhealthy place to be for someone, if you cannot exercise self-control, he says in verse 9, then they should marry. Like this is, this is, for that individual in this situation, marriage is something definitely to be sought, to not be in a perpetual state of inability to be self-controlled, as Paul highlights there. So he elsewhere explicitly, and this is just helpful to see the connection, in 1 Timothy 5.14, he explicitly counsels towards marriage. So it's not that like Paul's just kind of a one-track mind, he's going to try to encourage everyone to stay single. Later on, he says uh, in 1 Timothy, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So here he's explicitly, again, giving counsel towards marriage. So a little bit of uh, pause again for questions, and then I'll have a couple of table discussion questions. So any questions for clarification so far? Yes, Henry. Yeah, I think verse 9 is more general, um, kind of just in general, but then later on next week, there's a discussion specifically about those who are um, engaged or betrothed. Verse uh, 36 talks about that. So I'd say both. both would, one would be the situation of like engagement, yeah, get married, and um, we kind of we import our idea of engagement into betrothal. There's definitely some differences we'll talk a little bit about, but um, I would say generally both is what's being referred to. But maintaining that reality with 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which is there's never going to be a situation where oh, I, just, I just can't. No, there's always that escape route for sexual temptations. So, good question. Other questions? Let's take... Maybe um, five minutes just to go through those questions um, at tables. The two, kind of two compound questions. One, how does verse four highlight the profound depth of trust and relational intimacy that God designed for marriage? How should such a deep level of vulnerability in marriage influence how seriously you pursue clarity regarding who you married, who you marry when you are dating? And then secondly, how are you using the gift of singleness that God has given you? who has been an example in your life of someone who maximized or leveraged their singleness in the way they sought to honor God? And what do you learn from Jesus and Paul in this? So go ahead and discuss those for maybe five minutes or so, and we'll come back together. All right. I realize these are questions that you could dig into for quite a while, and uh, we actually won't, won't spend time right now digging into them as a full group. Feel free to further discuss these things and think through them. It's good to understand how these things change the way we go about dating and then, of course, using that singleness. But the next section Paul talks about, starting in verses uh, 10 through 11, are discussing divorce, and this section is, divorce is bad, and separation is not God's design. Separation is not God's design. He says, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So separation is not God's design. The instructions here, do not 
pursue divorce. That's the instructions. This is, it is self-evident that as with so many biblical commands, these instructions are radically counter-cultural. And if in a status of divorce, this, this counsel that if in the status of divorce, reconciliation is to be the priority. And that's, again, not at all the way this is talked about or prioritized today. And reconciliation is to be the priority, and I will say, unless or until such pursuit becomes an impossibility, such as situations of complete abandonment, which he's later going to talk about here, or adultery, which Jesus talks about. And I want to just first, before we jump into the details here, clarify something with the whole, um, who's the, uh, what's, what's the authority here, right? Because verse 10 and then verse 12 say a, a phrase that often gets miscommunicated. One, he says, not I, but the Lord. And then he says, I, not the Lord. So is he kind of giving like two tiers of authority? Like here, here we have like, Jesus is talking, but the rest is just me kind of like, you know, here's some advice. No, not at all. The phrase, I, not the Lord, is in reference to a command or sorry, not I, but the Lord, he's referencing the fact that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, talked about these things in his earthly ministry. They're recorded in the Gospels. These are things that were directly communicated by Jesus Christ. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, so he, he speaks and communicates on behalf of Christ. But here he's referencing, this is not news. Like, I'm not, I'm not bringing you something that you're going to be like, what? I'm not supposed to divorce my wife? Like, what? I didn't know that. Like, no. Matthew 5.32 says... But I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then Mark 10, 10 through 12. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So he's saying, I'm, like, you're not hearing this first from me, guys. Like this is, this is common knowledge. This is... Jesus communicated this. But then what about when he says, I, not the Lord? Because that's the part that often gets confused in verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. And here he's getting very specific to a situation that Jesus wasn't talking about because, as this commentator highlights, which I think is helpful in the cell, he says, in Jesus' earthly ministry, he directly addressed the issues Paul raises in verses 10 and 12, or 10 and 11. Jesus gave the exceptions in Matthew 5, 32 and then 19.9, that Paul does not repeat here. But Jesus did not address the issue that Paul raises in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16. Jesus did not address this issue because in his context, he was teaching Jews who married fellow Jews. So the context of those that he was addressing in his earthly ministry, he didn't go into the detail that Paul is going into and applying God's design for marriage in the specific context of uh, someone who comes to faith in Christ, but yet they're married to an unbeliever. How do I handle this? And there was a lot of confusion. We'll get to that in a moment. But the first thing to highlight is just what's being instructed in verse 10 and 11 is do not pursue a divorce. Do not pursue separation. If a believer has pursued separation, reverse course and pursue reconciliation. That's the priority given that's the emphasis and the focus given. Again, Jesus does give some, some special cases to talk about, but as a general rule and command, the believer is supposed to pursue reconciliation with their spouse at great lengths until it's truly an impossibility. So that is, this, the third section on divorce is not God's design. Separation is not God's design. But then, what about these cases in which someone's married to a non-believer? Again, huge opportunity for false teaching to creep in and then false practice. So Paul's response, marriage is good. And he highlights the evangelistic power of faithfulness in marriage. His instructions, don't divorce your unbelieving spouse, verses 12 through 13. Those being addressed are those who are believers who are married to an unbelieving spouse. And it's good to highlight, this is regarding marriages where a spouse comes to faith after getting married. Spouse comes to faith after getting married, since marrying an unbeliever is forbidden in 2 Corinthians 6, 14. 
And the reason given for this, holiness. The holiness of the spouse and the holiness of the children. This, what does this mean? First off, holiness here cannot possibly be a reference to salvation because verse 16 points to salvation as a possibility. See that? So verse 16 says, how do you know whether or not your husband will be saved? How do you know whether or not your wife will be saved? So when it says in verse 14, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, it's not in reference to salvation because salvation is listed as a possibility. So what is it in reference here? The holiness of the spouse. We can kind of think of it as a little bit of an equation maybe. The last two chapters, he's been talking about something that has been hopefully become very clear to the original readers and to us. Christian plus immoral sexual act equals impurity and defilement. Chapter 5, the incestuous man in the church. Chapter 6, believer going to a prostitute. Christian plus immoral sexual activity leads to impurity and defilement. So, Corinthian believers are thinking, oh, well, if, if that leads to impurity and that's impure to the Lord, then, then surely me having sex with my unbelieving spouse Surely that's somehow bringing impurity into our relationships. Maybe I'm going to be defiled. And he says, far from it. Christian plus ongoing union with unbelieving spouse, rather than leading to impurity and defilement, he says, leads to purity and the promotion of holiness, which is really cool. The piety of the one who has more effect, the piety of the one has more effect in sanctifying the marriage than the impiety of the other in polluting it. That's the way Calvin's commentary on that. It's not that, it's not that the, the unbeliever is going to somehow contaminate you. To the contrary, you're actually going to be bringing holiness into that marriage union as a believer. So, again, holding that totally in tension with 2 Corinthians 6.14, don't pursue marriage to a non-believer. That's super clear. Um, but the Christian partner should think of the truth that the Lord can use him as a godly, holy influence in a mixed family relationship and in helping that family to be consecrated and set apart to the Lord. That idea of consecration and set apart is really, I think, that idea that's being captured there. To the contrary, it's, it's not some sort of um, defiled, lesser marriage because it's, it's not that God like, sees some sort of lower tier of that marriage that, oh yeah, in that case, you can totally ignore what I just said in the previous part of this chapter. No, no to the contrary. So the next thing he talks about is the holiness of the children. Although it was the faulty conclusion that the Corinthians had come to, they, had, they were wrong in thinking that um, children born to kind of like mixed parents, a, a believing parent, an unbelieving parent, somehow that child was going to be unclean and morally defiled. Um, no, to the contrary, if a Christian parent were to flee the marriage to the unbeliever, the godly influence over the child would be lost. But as it is with the believer in that marriage, there's great opportunity for influence and the sanctification and kind of set-apart consecration of that child. So the presence of a believing parent in the family exposes the child to countless blessings that would otherwise be absent. And a quote from MacArthur's Study Bible, one Christian in a marriage brings grace that spills over to the spouse, even possibly leading them to salvation. The presence of even one Christian parent will protect children from undue spiritual harm, and they will receive many blessings, and often that includes salvation. And he gives the clarification, just kind of a little caveat in verse 15, if the unbelieving spouse is unwilling to remain in the marriage, let it be so. If it's the unbelieving spouse that's, that's just abandoned, essentially, that's pursued the separation, it's, it's, not that, um, it's not that they have to basically go to war endlessly on this, on this divorce. It's okay, let it be so. And this verse highlights another case of, quote-unquote, permissible divorce. Again, this isn't talking about desirable. This isn't like a good thing. But Paul's admitting it's permissible. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Though still not God's heart and design for marriage, if a believer is abandoned or divorced by the unbelieving spouse, the Christian is not enslaved to an otherwise dissolved marriage. It, 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 it's okay to be um, separated from this person if that's 
that's truly their persistent desire, no matter. Even the, the pursuit of reconciliation that's happened on the part of the spouse, this believer, it still comes to this place of let it be so. So, the main focus, though, is on verse 16, that desirable potential. That why is it so valuable that this couple stays together? The desirable potential is the salvation of the spouse. Though in no way advocating missionary dating or marrying unbelievers, again, 2 Corinthians 6.14, this passage acknowledges the reality of believers who come to faith after marriage or marrying fake Christians who turn out to be lost hypocrites. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2, 1 and 2 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Again, that evangelistic potential and the evangelistic power of faithfulness in marriage. The believer is to try to keep the mixed marriage together in hope that the testimony of the believer will be used by God to bring the unbeliever to Christ. Enduring in a marriage that is hard has tremendous evangelistic impact on those in closest proximity. Not only the the spouse, certainly the children, extended family as well. Enduring in a marriage that is hard has tremendous evangelistic impact on those in closest proximity. And it is no guarantee of salvation, but it is nevertheless a very powerful testimony. Any questions before we, we break? In that situation where it talks about, like, if it's the unbelieving partner who separates, it, let it be so in such cases with the Let it be so in such cases with brother or sister is not necessarily that God has called you to peace. Um, earlier in the other section where it talks about someone who has been separated, remarrying, that being adultery, is that applicable here as well, or is that person, like, where does that sit? Yeah. Harmonizing those two passages is something in which. Believers have landed in different places on that. There's kind of a a general range of what is ultra clear in Scripture and then a range of like, okay, I don't think that's how it it fits together. So what we would understand as far as specifically with the remarriage piece, which is not something that we have to be clear, it's not something that Paul's really talking about here as much. Um, But how to reconcile that is really remarriage only in the case of where there's been a, a biblical divorce, a legitimate divorce, and that would be in the case of sexual immorality, adultery, and in the case of true abandonment, where reconciliation has been sought, but there's just, that marriage is not, is becoming impossible, whether that be because the, the spouse um, that divorced ended up marrying someone else, or, or whatever it might be, but really only in those cases of like truly biblical divorces would we then be in a place of, of saying, okay, yeah, re- remarriage is, and even then it's kind of like yellow light to proceed. This is it's not like green light, yeah, go for it once that's been, it's been confirmed. Like it's, it's still like, because Paul emphasizes the goodness of singleness so clearly, um, that's, that should be a powerful counterbalance to let someone really think about that. But it has to be an unbiblical, a biblical divorce. But Russ, can you uh, add any to that um, as far as practice here? No, I think, yeah. There was, if there was a biblical grounds for a divorce, there is then freedom to remarry. If there wasn't a biblical divorce, then to remarry is to commit adultery. Yeah, said so much more concisely. Thank you. As far as believers are concerned, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And that just goes back again to, that's why verse uh, 11 if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Like that, that reconciliation is something that culturally that's just written off as an impossibility. Biblically, as believers, that's priority. Like, can there be reconciliation? Well, based on the gospel, yes, there can be reconciliation. Like if we realize how much, how much had to happen for us to be reconciled to God, any marriage, no matter how messy it is, there can be reconciliation that happens there. So I think when we keep the gospel in mind, that fuels why this can be a reality, and yes, it'll be countercultural. It'll be, it'll be strange, but still a priority. So, good question. I would just add to that, that just because there's biblical grounds for a divorce doesn't mean that a, a divorce is the correct and proper remedy to pursue. Yes. Reconciliation is always the goal. The, the gospel 
applies in marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so, yeah. Yes, even in heartbreakingly devastating situations where forgiveness is what's extended and the gospel is magnified. Yeah, well said, Russ. Any other questions? Yes. What about the case scenario? Like, you know, our, our culture today is everything. I'm just like, you know, sex with anybody or whatever. Um, so what is that like in that case where a believer has had sexual relations with somebody and basically live out marriage-type things with somebody and then breaks it off and is married to somebody else? Is that similar to divorce still? No, that, that, I appreciate you highlighting that. Um, but yeah, that's just because someone's pretending to be married doesn't mean they're married. And, um, but yeah, by that, does that, make, does that clarify it? More to add, anyone on that? But yeah, great question. And, and I think it's also true, like we, that's definitely prevalent in our culture today, but it's also like that's not, that's not new. Like that's, Corinth was in the same environment. Generations have been in, in the same environment there. So um, yeah, there's not like, oh, we, we were sexually involved outside of marriage, therefore we basically are married and we need to think like it. And oh, if we broke up, that's, that's kind of really a divorce. Like no, in order to have that mindset, you really, what, what you think you're doing, what, what culture thinks they're doing is they're kind of like elevating what a, what a relationship is, but really what they're doing is they're dragging down what marriage is and trying to redefine it as something else. But the biblical uh, design and God's design for marriage is, um, it should be obvious that someone is married. It's not like, oh, I, I think maybe we, we're, we're kind of married, aren't we? So, no. Great question. So this, uh, this passage, just wrapping up, this passage covers a lot of ground. Paul establishes marriage is a good thing, and married couples should not think that avoiding sex is somehow more spiritual or more holy. Singleness is a good thing. It's commendable. It's useful. The state of singleness is a gift from God to be used accordingly. Divorce is not God's desire for marriage and it is to be actively avoided and mended wherever possible. And lastly, a believer shouldn't try to get out of a marriage in the name of holiness, but rather is called to stay and seek the salvation of his or her family, knowing that no impurity is being contracted by proximity to unbelievers. I'll close this in prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll break into groups. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for your word. We thank you for the challenge that it is to all of us, uh, I'm quite sure these words landing in different ways to different hearers, but we just ask that your spirit would continue to do his work of just personalizing the application of your word and and challenging and convicting us where we need to be convicted and conforming us more and more to the image of Christ. Again, Lord, we thank you, and we ask that you would continue to bless our day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.